This is A Confused Heap of Facts, the podcast where we have a discussion about history with the faculty of the Department of Military History and the U.S. Army Command and General Staff College. The views expressed in this podcast are those of the participants and do not necessarily reflect the official policy or position of the Department of the Army, Department of Defense, or U.S. Government. And our guest is Dr. Benjamin Schneider. Good to be here. And uh, one of the many things you study, Dr. Schneider, is the kind of the idea of justice in war, if that's a broad enough terminology for it. <laughs> yeah, I think that we could probably encompass what I talk about. Yeah, so let's talk about kind of the, the big picture of, of that in, in um, the military history, really, of, of Western Europe and then what becomes the Americans. That's mm. kind of how we'll bound ourselves. Um, so I think it's fair to say that war is kind of an endemic... Uh, activity throughout human history, whether it's kind of the big wars where you make big armies and you fight big battles, or more what what academics might call agonistic war, where you're just kind of always at war with each other on a lower scale. Um, and for the vast majority of human history, there's really no sense that war is bad or is anything but necessary, and that war should in any way be limited. So from the, the first question, kind of the very biggest picture, why do human societies, again, particularly Western Europe and into the Americas, why do they start to think that war might need to be limited? Why does that, why does that mindset change? Well, I think that it's perhaps important to draw a distinction between the... War is a tool of state or is a tool of political violence and ethical conceptions of war. Because I would suggest, and the, the written record is probably uh, less than stellar on this point given who writes records in the pre-modern period, that moral criticism of war and the suffering that it engenders probably goes back for as long as there has been war, right? And that the people who are subjected to it rather than initiating it probably have very strong feelings about trying to make it less brutal and awful uh, and even in um, pre-modern cultures in the Americas there are informal mechanisms that try to limit the scale and viol- the scale of the violence and the means and methods that can be used even though those are not necessarily codified mm-hmm. um, That being said, as you suggest, states, uh, feudal, monarchical, whatever else, are generally, until we get to the modern era, not especially open to the idea that their decision on when and how to use force should be limited. Um, They are much less uh, inclined to accept limitations on the means of force that they use, uh, with occasional exceptions like it's unfair to use crossbows because that lets, you know, unwashed peasants shoot noblemen off of their horses. Yeah, and so yeah, I think you bring up a couple of interesting themes that, that we'll keep touching on. One of them is hey, we have to be honest about many efforts to limit war in that they're, they're sometimes partially or even purely cynical. 
that sometimes people want to put, impose limitations on war because it provides them a benefit or takes away a deficit. Mm-hmm. And you just gave a good example of one, right? These, these supposedly chivalrous medieval French who are on horseback don't like crossbows because, as you point out, it breaks class barriers. And yet they employ lots of crossbowmen, right? Yes. It's more of a do as, do as I say, not as I do. Yep. You know? And I think the other, the other theme that, that you point out that's interesting is who gets to write both the rules and the history. Because, of course, as you point out, we, we have very few records of people who are not elites from the pre-modern past. Yeah. One thing I wanted to ask uh, as you take a look at the early modern period is kind of the distinction between opinions about something and actually actions taken against them, if that makes sense. So, for instance, during the Thirty Years' War, the destruction of Magdeburg, or the the sacking of the city, uh, widely noted and uh, wailed about, but was there anything done about that? Yeah, and before we get specifically into the early modern period, let's make that more general. We can include something like Alexander's destruction of the city of Tyre in the 330s. So I think that one of the important things to think about here um, is that there are different constituencies for limitations on war and sort of the three broad groups that I think we need to think about because as we get into the modern period they'll have they'll be at odds with each other and will influence the process in different ways is that you have political elites right the people who run states and who use war as a tool to advance their own ends the the Clausewitzian right war is politics by other means the people who set the politics that mm-hmm. war becomes the means for they have their own set of interests and desires the military serves as another block, right? The soldiers who have to implement war, who have to use violence to accomplish their ends, have their own set of interests and desires, right? They want laws that make their job easier, that don't put them in unnecessary danger, that don't restrict them in ways that they see as inimical to what they do. And then, of course, the last major block is civilians, right? Mm-hmm. The people who do not necessarily have any direct interest in what the state is doing, who are maybe winding up in the military, but more likely are subject to the violence of the armies that are moving through their territory, through their homes and fields. Uh, And that those three groups sometimes have overlapping concerns, other times don't, right? Mm -hmm. So if we're gonna talk about the Thirty Years' War, your various princelings, dukes, or what have you, the soldiers that are fighting the war, their interests are very much at odds with people whose cities are being sacked and whose homes are being burned. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I, I think there's another point worth making there, too. Uh, on one hand, those groups are not always discreet. I think modern mm-hmm. audiences may struggle with that when we talk about the more distant past, that you don't always have professional standing militaries that are distinct from their societies, right? Uh, sometimes the person sacking the city might literally have been a citizen of that city the day before, Mm -hmm. right? Um, And wars are a great way to hash out, for example, old neighborhood rivalries. Yes. Uh, But but also the idea that that war is purely politics, Mm -hmm. I think, is one that that is a modern affectation that doesn't exist in the past. Um, So let's use the example that Dr. Nance brought up, the idea of sacking a city, Mm -hmm. right? To a modern person, the idea of sacking a city is, I I think it's fair to say, probably anathema. Mm -hmm. Not that it doesn't happen, but it's not programmed, Mm -hmm. if you will. But if if we said that to somebody who lived prior to about 1600, they would think the opposite. 
that the whole point of waging war is to sack the city. That way you inflict a great harm on your enemy and you don't have to pay your soldiers because they'll take their pay. So how do you square a history of war that can include two ideas that are opposite to each other within this realm of military justice? Well, I mean, again, I think that some of this is uh, we should be expansive in what we think of as being politics here, right? That mm -hmm. I think this is it's fair to say that in the 21st or in the 20th century, there is a tendency to look at politics, which is fundamentally a question of who is in charge, who gets what resources, who prospers and who does not, uh, as being a high-minded activity that has a lot of theory and academics and all this behind it. Um, for most of human history, I would suggest, and if you want to be cynical about it, even into the present day, uh, much of political dispute is about fairly naked economic interests, right? War is fought to take territory to exploit the resources of that territory, agrarian or otherwise. Uh, soldiers and princes wage war because you can sack cities and make an awful lot of money, right? Mm -hmm. There are many people who become quite rich or who rise in society as a result of fighting in wars, being soldiers, commanders, etc. Mm -hmm. um, and so the, the change is perhaps not so much in the fact that politics dictates to some degree how war is used, but in what are seen as legitimate political ends. In the year 600, it's probably much more acceptable to say explicitly, we're going over the hill to take all of their gold and stuff and bring it back so that we can spend it on things we like. Mm -hmm. Nowadays, if you were to go out and say, we're going to invade a neighboring country so that we can all get rich, would not play as well in mm -hmm. many, uh, many established societies. Yeah, and I, as well, not just a, a kind of a material gain, but also, of course, uh, alongside the endemic nature of war is the endemic nature of slavery, mm -hmm. and how it's tied to war. You know, the two often ride in the same carriage, mm -hmm. if you will. So in, in Western Europe, um, North Africa in this case, but it's attached to Western Europe at the time, uh, really the first major effort to impose limitations on war comes out of Christianity. Mm -hmm. It comes from one of the tentpole early Christian thinkers, Augustine of Hippo, who really begins this idea within Christian thought of what we think of as just war mm -hmm. or just war theory. Mm -hmm. So w when we say just war theory, w what do we mean by that kind of in broad strokes? I mean, just war theory splits itself sort of into two pieces. The first is uh, when is it just to use war? Who can justly wage war and to what ends? And then, of course, uh, how to wage war justly once you have found yourself in a war what are the means and methods that you can use uh, to fight the war in accordance as closely as possible with uh, Christian morality and commensurately with you know maintaining your ability to go to heaven after the whole thing is done? Mm -hmm. um, and so there there are uh, other religious traditions that have similar kinds of ideas, the idea that you can't simply use violence indiscriminately, uh, but of course for our purposes here talking about Europe and their descendant armies and polities, this is mm -hmm. probably the, the start of uh, most of the systems that we're going to discuss in one way or another. Yeah, and, and I, I think, um, is it fair to characterize what you've said as uh, Augustine and subsequent just war theories are looking at 
what politicians decide and then what soldiers do. Those are kind of the two broad categories. Yeah, those are the two things, though uh, the part of it is also who has the authority to make war and under what circumstances, right? Mm -hmm. So there's, if we want to call it sort of three questions, the first is what is legitimate political authority in terms of war making? What are the reasons that that legitimate authority can go to war for? Once they go to war, then how soldiers um, and their officers or princelings or whatever who's in charge of the armies in the field can deploy violence to achieve those ends. Now, so when St. Augustine wrote this, he wrote it. The question then becomes, how quickly was it adopted or actually used and applied? Well, I mean, and this this will be something that, um, that we'll get to more when we get to the modern era and I, I talk about some of the, the challenges with creating a system for enforcing this is that it's very easy to create moral principles or to create legal principles. You then have to figure out a mechanism for actually enforcing those in practice and that has been the challenge for military justice uh, but as well for any other moral or ethical system that you care to name. Getting people to behave in the way that they've said they should uh, as it turns out, is not a trivial thing to accomplish. Yeah, and it's interesting, I think, that that we see that the, these first kind of just war ideas come out of religions, of Christianity, and then Islam has a fairly similar one, yeah. right? The basic principle is you really shouldn't make war on your co-religionists. Mm-hmm. So if you're Christian, go fight non-Christians. If you're Muslim, go conquer non-Muslims mm-hmm. and add them to the faith, right? Christianity has a similar mentality. Um, we don't see much of that in the secular world, which makes sense, right? In in for most of the medieval European period, by and large, people have a very religious worldview. Mm-hmm. So it makes sense you look at it through a religious worldview. Mm-hmm. What happens after we get after fifteen hundred? A couple things. One, there's a series of wars in Europe that start in the fifth in the fourteen nineties when the French kind of wander their way into Italy, and they culminate in the Thirty Years' War that Doctor Nance referenced earlier. Uh, so we have essentially 160 years of constant warfare, devastates parts of Europe, parts of Germany in the Thirty Years' War lose 80% of their population, right? And it's not just over time. It's not like you're wiping out a generation and then you're losing breeding in the next mm-hmm. generation. Uh, sometimes entire cities are depopulated during the Thirty mm-hmm. Years' War. It's a war fed by religious ideology. It's clear that the kind of, you know, don't wage war on other Christians idea has failed completely Mm -hmm. in the Thirty Years' War. So that's when we start to see a move away from purely religious ideology into a more secular idea Mm. of just war theory. So, and I'm kind of asking you to speculate a little bit outside your specialty, but what importance do you think there is in moving from a purely uh, intra-religious idea to a more secular one? of just war and limitations on war. So that's an interesting question. Um, And I'm not a specialist in the early modern era, so I would be be speculating here. I will confess uh, that from my own studies of more modern period, I think that in general, the difference between secular and religious ideas tends to be less than is commonly assumed. Um, That secular ideologies, if you want to look at them, have a uncomfortable tendency to generate 
often the same kind of zealous adherents as religious ideologies and to get into the same sorts of dogmatic doctrinal disputes and to begin almost inevitably at some point justifying violence against those who fall outside of the adherence of the ideology or the faith or what have you. Mm -hmm. um, I think that I think that there is at least in, and I can't speculate in the East because I'm not a, an expert in um, anything, well, I'm not an expert in anything related to religion, but I, I know far less about the non-Abrahamic religions than I do about the Abrahamic ones, uh, is that at least in the, uh, the Abrahamic faiths, there is a, a strong ethical component, right, that they're concerned with right behavior. Mm -hmm. And they're concerned with right behavior, of course, in all aspects of life. And so there is a an impetus to figure out how to wage war justly. Secular ideologies, I think, don't necessarily have to have that component. For a Jew, a Christian, or a Muslim, the idea that God is unconcerned with how you wage war, I think, is something that would not be seriously entertained. Secular ideologies have the option of saying how we accomplish our ends doesn't matter, and that we can use whatever will best accomplish our goals. Mm -hmm. And one of the things that I was kind of thinking of as you were talking about it is, and again, I'm a modern, a more, I'm a 20th century scholar, so a little bit out of my area here, but by the same token, the 30 Years War started as a Catholic versus Protestant conflict. It morphed substantially over the course of the war. And I wonder if there's something to that where it started as a religious conflict where they were fighting a, a Catholic could obviously view a Protestant as a her heretic and therefore not subject to the protections of a Catholic and vice versa. And I wonder after a certain point you enter into a secular approach because you have to come up with a universal, basically religi religious agnostic approach mm -hmm. as now all of a sudden you have Catholics and Protestants yep. fighting on the same side. Speculation, yep. but it does seem to follow the trajectory. Worth pointing out, the major Catholic side uh, country fighting on the side of the Protestants was France, mm -hmm. and they were roundly condemned for it. So this wasn't just, you know, everybody was not a, a cynical, secular modernist. The, there was a great deal of religious appropriation yes. directed at France for fighting against their co-religionists. Yeah, and, and I think I think what, what, this, what the Thirty Years' War does is... It puts us into this time of what we could call the Enlightenment, right? It, mm -hmm. it coincides with the rise of Descartes and Newton and, and a departure from the occasionalist views of, of religion, uh, which had started long ago with Aquinas, but they really start to become popular after 1650. The other thing that starts to happen in the early modern era is they do actually start to create some systems we would now recognize as collective security. Mm. So one of the main ones is in the many treaties that make up the Peace of Westphalia, often erroneously called the Treaty of Westphalia, France and Sweden are declared to be guarantors of the peace in Germany. Mm. And the idea is that would prevent another internal German war. Mm -hmm. Which, in fairness, it does until Prussia rises, right? And then this is that's a century later, so mm -hmm. it's a whole different, it's yeah. a whole different problem. And then, a couple decades later, you get thinkers, people like uh, Abbe Saint Pierre and, and others who follow him. Uh, Hugo Grotius mm -hmm. also does some of this, who start to say, one, the soldiers need to behave better. We mm -hmm. can't have Langenecht and sacking cities mm -hmm. anymore. If nothing else, because it kills our commerce. Mm -hmm. And then two, we need to actually 
create systems that hinder countries from going to war with each other. Mm -hmm. And so we start to see things like the Congress system evolve. We often associate the Congress system with the 19th century, but it started in actually the, the very end of the 17th century. So we're kind of moving a little bit towards modernity mm -hmm. in that way. And there are fewer and less destructive wars throughout much of the 18th century until you get to the French mm -hmm. Revolutionary War. Yes. So, so in some ways, we kind of are starting to see the very beginnings of, of what we might recognize as a, a limited war ideology mm -hmm. in this early modern period. Um, largely not spoken of in the context of religion. Yeah. It's spoken through a secular mm -hmm. context uh, for whatever reason. Although the French are again roundly condemned for not fighting the Ottomans mm -hmm. in the 1680s. But let's take this a step further, right, which is uh, the, uh, the treatment of prisoners. Because for much, for much of history, when, someone, mm -hmm. when a side surrendered, it was basically, congratulations, you are now our slaves, we have conquered you, you're now mm -hmm. along those lines. But now you have fortresses that surrender and garrisons march out under uh, parole, mm -hmm. and some are sent to actual prison hulks, mm -hmm. but some are just sent home. Mm -hmm. so, how do, uh, so how do we adjust that, uh, our, our thinking based upon this shift? I'm asking the early modernists of the room uh, for perhaps a start. Well, and I think I think it shows something that Enlightenment thinkers would trumpet, right? To them, the post-1648, post-30 Years' War international order was one that was less destructive and more limited. Deliberately so. The people of Europe decided to stop killing each other in such numbers. Uh, but they still continue to kill each other for a variety of reasons, right? And the flip side of what you're talking about is the, the reason that they started making prisoner swap agreements is soldiers started getting expensive, right? So they generally paroled soldiers in response to their own soldiers being taken captive by the enemy. They didn't just do it. They did it to save themselves soldiers or to save themselves the money of housing those soldiers, Right. So there's a practical aspect as, a po as opposed to strictly a moral aspect. Well, and, and in another way, uh, one of the things we're going to talk about when we get to the modern era is limitations on what soldiers do mm -hmm. in battle spaces and to civilians. There are, there are efforts to do that in the early modern era, but they're not spoken of in the context of humanity. Sometimes you get the, you know, the Rousseau brush that's painted over mm -hmm. it and said, oh, we need to be nicer to each other. But it's more of, hey, it, it's bad for discipline when your guys are looting. So they, don't, again, they don't care about the humanity part. They care about the discipline part. So again, a practical as opposed yes. to a moral. Yes. And I don't know if you see the antecedents of more modern orders in yeah. some of those. Well, so th this is the, the other piece, right? I mean, we talk about various constituencies uh, for laws of war. And this will be something that is explicitly brought out when we get to the 19th century in the U.S. Army. Um, but for the military constituency... As civilians, I think we often think about military justice as something that is concerned primarily with justice, with doing right, with not doing wrong, with making sure that people are punished or not based on whether they adhere to that moral system. Militaries do not see or have not traditionally seen military justice as being related to justice at all. It is a disciplinary system. A military justice system serves and served 
first and foremost in many places as a means of enhancing combat effectiveness. Which is why you have a relatively minor crime like falling asleep on watch penalized by something as extreme as death. Yes. Yeah. Insubordination, absent being out with, absent without leave, drunk on duty, asleep on watch, right? You can be dealt with very, very harshly because the goal is to make sure that you will do your job as a soldier and not undermine the effectiveness mm-hmm. of your army or your outfit. Um, and so there is that element both in what is a crime, but I think the other thing that's important to understand is the way the system is set up to begin with is designed around the needs of a military. So, for instance, if you want to try someone Mm -hmm. for anything, right, you need a number of things. You need a code of laws. You need people who know those laws. You need the time and space to have a trial. Mm -hmm. You need people who are capable of preparing for that trial. And you need evidence of whatever it is that you're trying the person for, right? Those are very difficult things to do in a pre-modern army when you have primarily illiterate soldiers, and it remains a very difficult thing to do when you're in the middle of fighting a war, Mm -hmm. right? If someone who is fighting in a line regiment or a line division commits a crime, how many people are you going to have to stop fighting Mm -hmm. so that you can get witnesses and judges and lawyers and evidence And then how many of your soldiers are you going to be willing to send back to put in a cell for doing the things that they've done when you might, as it turns out, need them to go fight the enemy? Mm -hmm. And so military justice into the 19th century is built around efficiency. It's a system that is designed to operate with a minimum of trained personnel. It's designed to operate with a minimum of professionals. It's designed to operate on common sense grounds, right? things that commanders would intuitively understand they would need to punish because you're not necessarily going to have a dozen law books to consult Mm -hmm. while you're doing this. But what that also means is that you are limited in the kinds of crimes that you can effectively prosecute, and you are limited in the way in which justice can be conducted. And so you are going to have a system that will, by the time we get to the 20th century, appear to many civilians to be arbitrary, Mm -hmm. draconian, and um, vicious. Yeah, and so to give an example of that, in, in, in my period in 18th century France, you will often run across commander's letters where the, it's reported to them that a soldier you know, committed some crime. They, they looted a farmhouse. Mm-hmm. Very common thing to happen. Sometimes, particularly when the supply system breaks down, they will kind of let that go. Mm. But sometimes the response back is, find the soldier, hang him, march his unit past him. Yep. And I think a, an aspect that a, a modern audience may not appreciate here is the, the, the um, legal bifurcation of class, right? Mm-hmm. When, a, when a noble commits a crime, at worst, that noble will be tried by a court of his peers. Mm-hmm. And, and understand, in America, we don't know what peer means. Peer does not mean other people. Peer means people who are like you in your social class. Mm-hmm. So you have to be tried by a court of other nobles. If you're a commoner, you are subject to the rule of nobles, and your commander is always a noble. So he can just say, yeah, execute him. And that is considered to be proper justice. Mm-hmm. You don't need lawyers. You don't need a trial. That They are the lawyers. They are the trial. Mm-hmm. Right. I think, I think what, what starts to become a problem is where you move away from the kind of the landed aristocracy model 
into more egalitarian models. And now we're pushing into the 19th century, right? So we have the cataclysm of, of the French Revolution and the Napoleonic era. We pull down many existing systems. Many of them will fall in short order afterwards. And it's no longer acceptable to say, because you're a noble, you get to be judge and executioner, although they wouldn't dirty their hands with the execution part. So taking right. that a step further, like let's just take the keep it in France, just to keep our, our uh, lines mm -hmm. clean for a second. Before the French Revolution, noble could order the execution of a commoner in a, in a regiment. Mm -hmm. Have a nice day. After the French Revolution, Declaration of the Rights of Man and Citizen, on and on and on, Napoleon's armies in 1803 or 1804. Soldier does the same thing. Is there a difference in that short period of time or do we have to uh, or do we have to draw it out a little bit more? Well, part of the problem is uh, as Dr. Schneider pointed out, you have to have an apparatus for this to work. And we forget the modern lawyer is the modern lawyer. It's not a pre-modern thing. Uh, if you were a lawyer prior to the modern age, that meant that you were an expert on the church, right? You were a church lawyer. There's not really such a thing as a as a as a, a legal expert in the way we recognize them today, prior to the 19th century in most places in in Western Europe and America, right? It's not true in like China. So I think another thing that's important to to raise here for our listeners who are probably probably thinking of uh, you know. NCIS or other sort of modern military legal <laughs> right, shows. Right, right. Um, you know, a few good men. Much of what Dr. Abel is talking about here with the peerage system, with, with the absence of legal expertise of any sort, continues to hold into the 1940s. That many of the kinds of things that he's talking about will, will be persistent features of the system. Mm -hmm. um, it is... I believe only after the end of the Second World War that members of the United States military are tried by their peers, right? right? Officers are tried by other officers, and the enlisted are tried by officers because the officers are those who run the army because right. they, they form that aristocratic caste. Right. Uh, similarly, um, again, up through 1945, the majority of soldiers that are tried by the U.S. Army will not see a lawyer at any point. Mm -hmm. They'll have people who are called counsel. There will be a trial judge advocate, but that judge advocate is not one necessarily a member of the judge advocate corps, right? They have not necessarily received any professional training uh, and may not have any legal training whatsoever. Yeah. Um, in part because there are a limited number of lawyers and the Army didn't plan particularly well for that, but also because the system doesn't require it because yeah. it knows that the Army understands that they're going to have to do this in very uh, Spartan circumstances, and so you you simply have officers. The officers take on that role, whether or not they're professional. I think it's worth pointing out too. This is not unique to militaries. Mm. This is true of Western European and American culture, going all the way back to the Greeks and Romans. Right? If you were on trial in Rome, uh, you might have legal counsel, but the trial was decided by who made the better argument, not by who was right. Mm. And I think it, that extends through into the modern period not just in militaries. The, the aristocrats who sat on you know, what we would recognize as military benches, as judges, they had their own courts back home. They were the judges in the, in the manorial court. So it makes sense that you would have them do that in the military. And, and let's understand, 
most European countries have hereditary aristocracies well into the 19th mm. century, right? Uh, some of them still do today. England still does today. Still has a hereditary aristocracy. So this is not just some, you know, backwards military institution. Mm. This, is, this is a reflection of society. However, a couple things change when we get into the 19th century. One, the French Revolution unleashes the forces of egalitarianism, right? We now have a major country that has at least experimented with democracy. Two, mass literacy is coming. So we can no longer rely on the people to remain ignorant, fragmented, mm. and unable to reach each other. Mm. And three, the, the mechanisms to limit war actually start to work, right? So in, in, in Europe, throughout the crises of the 19th century, instead of starting a general war, and in fact, there is no general war in Europe between 1815 and 1914, right? There's small mm. wars, but there's no big war. Instead of starting wars, people come together to talk about issues. It's mm. kind of a, a proto-United Nations, if you will, just minus the mm. enforcement mechanism. And it does work. It does limit mm. war. The other thing that's happening, and ironically it comes out of America, is we look at the lower level and we start to look at the rules that might actually be put in place to govern the actions of soldiers. Mm -hmm. and, and here we're moving from my period into more of the two modernists. So what does the U.S. Civil War contribute to this discussion? These, these former colonists who are now struggling with some of these same things. So, yeah, um, well, the... American Civil War will do the small thing of basically creating modern military law. Mm -hmm. uh, during the course of that conflict, um, Lincoln, in trying to prosecute this war and in using an army far larger than anything that the United States has put together prior to this period, feels the need to come up with a set of rules and regulations to govern the army in the field. So he uh, consults with a jurist by the name of Francis Lieber to write for him uh, a document that is in line with uh, changes in how uh, Enlightenment thinkers, European thinkers, are beginning to understand how war should be conducted and to write uh, General Orders 100, which is known colloquially as the Lieber Code. It lays out a comprehensive set of regulations for uh, U.S. troops fighting the war, covering all aspects of conduct, when you can requisition, how you are to treat civilians, what disciplinary measures will be, and it devotes a non-trivial amount of time to what kinds of ways soldiers may use violence and how the system should deal with them if they fall outside of the prescribed means and methods. So, so what is Lieber using to write this code? He obviously isn't just sitting down and coming up with a bunch of good ideas off of his head. So what's kind of the backstory for him to produce this? So, I mean, there, there have, has been, prior to the American Civil War, and you probably know more of the, the origins of this than I do since uh, you have a better command of Enlightenment European thought, uh, but th there is a body of of laws and thinking going back to, to Grotius and beyond about um, how war should be conducted, what rights states have, what they can and can't do. Now, of course, those don't necessarily have force behind them, right, because there is no ultimate arbiter in the international space, so therefore there is no court to try you if you violate the law, right? Mm -hmm. um, so most of these are musings or utopian efforts to try to shape things. But there is a large body of these sorts of literatures, and so this is what 
uh, Lieber is reading and is putting together when he starts thinking about how should the U.S. Army govern itself, right? How should the government govern its soldiers? Let me throw in a couple extra things in there, too. Um, I mentioned uh, St. Pierre. There's a guy named Vatel who does a lot of this, who sketches mm-hmm. out a lot of it. But you're right. It is, it is utopian thought. And the person who takes it all down is Voltaire, because Voltaire comes in and says, yes, all of this is great, however, it's unrealistic. And then the other thing that's that changes, so yes, we have this utopian thought that's out there, but it's only the utopians in their universities who talk about it. I think it's important that this happens in America, because in the 1860s, America is one of the few countries in the world with an enumerated constitution, mm-hmm. bill yes. of rights, law code. Yes. So you can't just say, well, that's custom, but, you know, we're going we're gonna to not do that this time. So two pieces to that. The first of which is that this is, of course, the other source of it, which is customary practice. And the, uh, the term that will be used endlessly is the laws and customs of war, right? So much of what Lieber is codifying, he would argue, is not being pulled from the ether, but is simply writing down how armies, European armies anyway, have done things and what they've viewed to be acceptable or unacceptable. But the other piece of it that Dr. Abel raises and where he's exactly right is that the United States is different from most European states. We have an enumerated constitution and we have a set of judicial rights laid out in the constitution and elsewhere uh, that is distinct from many European countries. And I won't, I'm not familiar with European legal systems in the same way that I am with the American legal system, so I will not speculate how there's I'll give you an example. Today, in 2023, in the United Kingdom, the monarch can order the indefinite detention of a subject Mm. at the pleasure of the monarch. Mm. There there is no law preventing that. So, yeah, that's not something that Americans would, uh, would stand for, presumably. And so this is the other piece, is that where European militaries retain into the 20th century, I think, a a smaller degree of difference between their military and civilian justice systems. In the United States, there becomes an increasingly wide gap between a military justice model that is based very heavily on European systems and precedent and a civil justice model that comes very much out of American constitutional thought and a a post-revolution, post-enlightenment view of the world. And that difference begins to make the old model of uh, military justice unsustainable in the face of public pressure. And some of the driving pressure behind this is that he's bullying in vast numbers of people who'd been civilians and are writing home to their civilian families, and Lincoln has to get reelected. America is a disproportionately literate place from its foundings. Yes. So both the literacy, the ability to complain to elected representatives, which are not necessarily given, but also... And the soldiers can vote. The soldiers can vote, and, and perhaps most importantly, the soldiers in the American Civil War, by and large, or at least by the end anyway, have not volunteered, yep. right? When you're dealing with conscripts, draftees, and you then subject them to this harsh disciplinary system, they have a tendency to object. I didn't want to be here in the first place. You didn't ask me if I wanted to be subject to these laws. And now you're going to send me to prison or execute me for 50 years for telling my sergeant that I don't like him. Right. In a country where you're allegedly allowed to say whatever you want. Yes. Yeah. Lieber has a lot of new ideas or or codifications of old ideas about 
limitations on how violence can and can't be used, right? Lieber rejects assassination, he rejects torture, he rejects the use of ruses and false surrenders, all of these different things, right? Summary execution of prisoners is generally frowned upon, but there are two major exceptions. The first thing is that Lieber is writing a practical document for an army, and so there's a cheat code embedded in this which is that if it is militarily necessary, as deemed by the commander on the spot, mm-hmm. you can do anything. Because if you need to do it to win the war, right, clearly a soldier is not going to give up on winning the war just because a little rule book tells him not to do it. Uh, and so that is the sort of get out of jail free. If you say, we, couldn't, we did not have the means to safely take those prisoners back, therefore we had to dispose of them, right, that's fine, right? If you have to burn the village in order to save it, that's what's necessary, that's fine, right? The other side may not agree, and they may see this as a violation, they may get very cranky about it, but you, under the Libra Code, are legally justified. The other piece that has to be understood is we've talked a lot about lawyers and trials and all of this. That's not how the system is enforcing these kinds of rules. The way in which the Lieber Code and much of international law up until we get into the early 20th century will see the enforcement of these codes is through reprisal, which means essentially we're not going to try anybody for these violations. If you kill prisoners, we're not going to sit down and have a court and wade through the evidence. If somebody from Dr. Nance's unit kills somebody from my unit, what we're going to do when we get somebody else from Dr. Nance's unit is we're going to make it their problem. And then hopefully, upon that example, Dr. Nance's unit will reconsider their behavior, right? Which, take that to the, let's expand this. So the, the Libra Code is, is strictly for the American Army and yes. to the Civil War. Yeah. So what about the Confederate Army? So this is, um, and uh, uh, Lorian Foote has uh, a book on precisely this subject, which is uh, about the rules and rights of retaliation. Right, so generally speaking, what's supposed to happen is not that you immediately take it out on somebody else. Right? There are provisions for that. Uh, the U.S. Army will, until the end of World War I, have a, a little note in its rules of land warfare that um, uh, units of the enemy uh, n- known to, uh, to give no quarter will receive none, or yeah. that prisoners taken from a unit that gives no quarter uh, can be execu- executed for up to 72 hours after capture if it takes you that long to figure out that they're from this unit that doesn't follow the rules. But what uh, what Dr. Foote has found is that there are elaborate rituals, that when one of these offenses is put forward, you write, you talk to the other side, you send them a little note that says, you know, we believe that men under your command have done X, Y, and Z terrible things, and unless you make restitution of some sort or give us some concrete assurance that it will not happen again, we are going to do nasty things one, two, and three. So for, in the Civil War, take mm-hmm. that example, the, uh, the Union, the United States Army, is fighting underneath the Libra Code, mm-hmm. specifically codified law. Yeah. The Confederate Army is fighting, uh, which had been the pre- previous yeah. parts of the American yeah. Army, are now fighting under basically the old customary traditions that some of which has been codified in the Libra Code and some of which has not. Yes. Yeah. So the, uh, the Americans have had, since the, uh, the Revolutionary Army, articles of war, right? Rules and regulations that are not necessarily comprehensive, but are 
the legal authority for the army to punish and discipline soldiers, right? Congress will, will pass these things and the army will, will have them there. Uh, I'm not an expert on the Confederacy, so I don't know how much they do or don't take. Uh, but there are a number of Confederates who get pretty salty about the license that Lieber gives to, uh, well, you know, to burn, pillage, and loot if it's deemed necessary. Because so now we have our now we have our kind of um, prototype, if you will. Yeah. Um, now, as we move forward in the century, and in, it's it's worth noting that that this is contemporaneous with the rise of military medicine, the idea of the. Um, non-combatant status mm -hmm. of, of um, health workers yep. on the battlefield. It, we're moving forward into a time where we truly achieve mass literacy in many places mm. in the later part of the century, the rise of professionalism, so now we actually have lawyers around. So how does that take us into the era of the Hague and Geneva Conventions, these big international agreements that are supposed mm. to expand ideas like the Libra Code kind of to everybody? So the there are a host of these and they do a wide variety of things. The, the Hague and Geneva Conventions will eventually wind up talking, touching on basically every area of warfare that you could imagine. Um, but we can sort of broad, broadly clump them into two major pieces. Those that come before the First World War tend to be more modest humanitarian interventions, uh, stipulating protections for Red Cross workers, uh, putting certain kinds of weapons outside of the realm of like gas, legality. gas um, uh, expanding rounds, shotguns, I believe, are, are put under there at some point, right, to limit the amount of suffering that war causes in the same way that you don't use crossbows to shoot nobles off of horses. Except when you do. Except when you do. Well, right, you know, I mean, ask uh, ask the Americans about a trench shotgun sometimes. Right. So, right. Um, but these are less revolutionary and tend to retain to a great extent the ability of armies to use military necessity as justification if they see fit and keeps intact the system of reprisal and retaliation that had made the Libra Code work. Right? Mm -hmm. This is still very much a collective problem. Right, It's not about punishing individuals for individual crimes, but states making claims against each other, armies making claims against each other. And this is, of course, the fundamental problem, which is rules only work in a contest if everyone plays by them. Well, and this is where we're headed, right? Because World War One is the great cataclysm. Yes. First general war in a century. Lots of people die. Industrial mass-scale yeah. warfare. There's a sense it was all for nothing. Yes. Yes. And so the First World War will blow the system up. But as you say, part of the problem, part of the thing that comes out of this and this won't be fully codified until we get to the end of World War II, is that we begin to see the breakdown of the system of reprisal, right? So Lieber is very explicit in talking about both how his system is supposed to work and why it's in place, right? He says that the goal of all of this is to avoid war degenerating into the internecine wars of savages, right? Where anything goes, where everything is possible. Yes, there are some interesting 19th century overtures to that particular statement. It's the 19th century. It is. It is very much the 19th century. Uh, but he understands, right, that this requires active restraint on the part of all parties. That if you were to go full to the wall on what you can do in the black letter of the law, right, 
in terms of reprisals, in terms of military necessity, he understands that this is going to spiral. It is going to turn into an increasing escalation of violent reprisals of one side against the other. As Clausewitz would say, that it, it moves towards the absolute. Exactly. And for the period between the American Civil War and up to World War I, mostly European armies and the, the U.S. Army are able to keep that spiral of violence from setting off. World War I, we see the beginning of the breakdown, the German actions in Belgium, hostage-taking and reprisals and executions on the Eastern Front, mm -hmm. use of poison gas, use of weapons that had not been seen before. And after the end of World War I, there is an enormous backlash to this system. Mm -hmm. um, so three things happen. The first of which is you begin to see increasingly stringent, non-negotiable protections put in place. So, for instance, the Geneva Convention of 1929 protects prisoners absolutely. No longer are summary executions of prisoners acceptable under any circumstances. It also stipulates that you may not, under any circumstances, uh, refuse quarter. There's a section of the American Rules of Land Warfare that come out in, I believe, 1934 that says essentially measures not justified by military necessity, which is not a category that Francis Lieber understands to exist. Right. The other piece is, so you've removed, you've limited where reprisals can be used, and you've limited military necessity, but you've also raised the stakes. Because at the end of World War One. Right, the war is over. Reprisals are no longer a thing that can take place, but people were still pretty mad, right, about this whole thing. And so they say, "Well, these guys are just criminals, mm -hmm. right? These German officers may have had a uniform, but they're just criminals like anybody else. The Kaiser may be a king, but he's also a punk, and he was going around mucking up the neighborhood. Mm -hmm. Why don't we put together a court? Why don't we have a series of trials for these guys, and we'll send them to prison like anybody else, right? And so." This is radical, mm -hmm. right? The idea of states trying the citizens or the head of another state is not something that has been uh, traditionally a part of European jurisprudence. And it's not quite clear how an international military tribunal would work. So what happens is the Germans, as part of the post-war settlement, agree, all right, well, we'll there, are, there are citizens, our subjects, we'll try them We'll handle it. We'll not going to try the Kaiser. Off to the Netherlands. Yeah. But there are a series of war crimes trials that take place in Leipzig. And they're a disaster, right? The Germans don't want to try any of these people. They have no interest. A whole bunch of the folks who are supposed to go in front of a court escape from prison, generally when the, their German jailers turn the keys and let them out of the building. Uh, and it, it just it fizzles. There are supposed to be, I think, somewhere in the order of thousands of trials, there are less than 100 that ultimately go forward and basically no one is convicted. We'll round up the usual suspects? Exactly. So we now have an interesting correlation to the next World War, right? Because in the interwar years, we set up all of these um, international agreements, largely at Geneva, mm -hmm. to, to limit destructiveness and, and the, the inhumanity of war. We outlaw war. Um, Kellogg brand, yep. Right. And then World War II happens, and um, all of these things get thrown out the window, including not just on the battlefield, but of course World War II is notorious for the mass murder of civilians mm -hmm. as well. Yes. So a couple important things are going to come out of World War II in, the, in this regard. One of them is that we need to revisit these things. Yeah. 
The other one is this concept uh, that's often shorthanded to Nuremberg. Mm -hmm. So could you talk about kind of those two aspects of what World War II does for this discussion? All right, well, so what, we're not gonna get to Nuremberg just this second because there are a couple of things that have to happen first. And you know, you've alluded to the first one of these, which is um, the character of the Second World War, right? If World War I sees the industrialization of mass killing, World War II sees the complete and total breakdown of any sorts of customary limits on how violence is used. Often on purpose. Yes, it's a deliberate matter of state policy. I think it's important to understand, right, the, the Japanese and the Germans both use uh, terror as a part and parcel of how they fight their wars uh, and have, in many cases, extermination as a policy yeah, goal. Yeah, why they fight their wars, yes. right? So this causes two problems, the first of which is by the time the United States enters the war in December of 1941, Everyone understands that something is going to have to be done, right? That this is violence on a scale and on a level that cannot go unpunished, and something is going to have to be dealt with. But at that point, the Germans are winning, right? And so the Allies have a problem, right? If you wanted to use a reprisal system, and some in, in the various militaries will suggest that, that there is not a need to update how the system operates, you can't because the Germans will have large numbers of Allied prisoners for quite a while. And so if you say, well, the, uh, you know, the Germans liquidated Ladis, and so we are going to take action against German prisoners in retaliation so you don't do this bad thing again, Adolf Hitler, who is not known for being a super nice guy, has a whole lot of Americans sitting around. Well, and, and also... It's one thing to talk about prisoners of war, but how do you retaliate for the Holocaust or for the rape of Nanjing? Yes. So that's the, the other question, right, is when you are now dealing with atrocities on that scale, are you going to execute an entire German division? Or are you going to execute the entire German army? What would be an appropriate... Entire German population. Yeah. Um, so there's there has to be a shift, right? And the death of the reprisal system through the sheer sort of impossibility of, of going tit for tat with the Nazis or the Imperial Japanese means that you need something else. And so also after the end of World War I, there's a push for reform to military justice generally, right? Where civilians who want to deal with some of the arbitrary, draconian, aristocratic aspects of the system are saying we need to have trials, we need to have evidence, we need rights and protections for the accused, we need to make the military justice system look more like the civilian justice system. So you're, you're creating a distinction here where there's the military justice system on our side, basically. Yeah. Hey, pick, a, pick a side, yeah. Americans or Brits, whatever. Yeah. Uh, where uh, dealing with military justice for American soldiers. Mm -hmm. Yes. And then there's also the second issue which is coming up with it, which is how do we achieve justice against a hostile yeah. soldier other than depending upon his own legal system to account yeah. for it. And so what essentially happens as we get towards the end of World War II is a move towards something that looks like universal justice. The idea that all soldiers, right, should be held to the same rules and regulations, right, that all soldiers are responsible before the law 
and that the system that the Americans used to deal with a murderer in an American uniform and the system that they used to deal with a German, a murderer in a German uniform should be roughly the same thing. And that if it should be roughly the same thing, you can have then, in some reasonable sense, an international tribunal where everyone gets together and says, these are the standards, you violated the standards, and we are all going to sit down and figure out what is to be done with you now. Mm -hmm. right? And this is the genesis of the Nuremberg trials. Now, it, it's also important to point out right, that this is not uniform. There's a lot of debate about this. And e in 1943, the first crack at this is hashed out, the Moscow Declaration, where the Allies say, essentially, we're not doing reprisals. We're going to do trials for all German war criminals. But they don't talk about international tribunals. What they say is German soldiers will be taken and given to the countries in who, where they have committed their crimes. And those countries will try them for the outrages. Suspect Stalin had a hand in that. He may indeed, <laughs> yes. Uh, and probably some ideas about what would occur afterwards. Right, but it's not international. It so, is specifically national government. So that that's point. actually where you're, uh, where you're kind of drawing out is this, because if you're trying a soldier in a German uniform and you're happening to be American, whose laws are you applying? Yeah. Well, and another thing that's worth pointing out that's happening contemporaneously to this is the, the construction of a functional world government, right? We mm -hmm. took a crack at this with the League of Nations. It failed. The United Nations, which people forget is the name of the Allies in World yep. War II, right, becomes the world government in September of 1945. So these, these, these are kind of converging mm -hmm. efforts. There is now a sense that if a country can commit a crime, mm -hmm. which pretty much nobody questions yep. that Germany and Japan committed crimes, therefore there must be a higher court higher than sovereignty. Yeah. And, and it, it, it's, it's easier, I think, if you, if you think in that context mm -hmm. that justice is coming. Yes. So as a, for instance, so we, we got the, the individual German soldiers mm -hmm. often being mm -hmm. prosecuted there. Mm -hmm. What legal system was used to underpin the Nuremberg trials? So again, this is... And I will say here that I am I am an expert on the American military yeah. justice system and its interpretation of international law up to just about the slightly after the end of World War II. I don't work on the Nuremberg yeah. trials, and that's yeah. a whole different legal kettle of fish. Yeah. So take everything I'm about to say with a grain of salt. Okay. That being said, right, some of this is you have the Hague and Geneva Conventions, right, to which Germany is a signatory. Mm -hmm. And you also have the custom part of the laws and customs of war. Right? Part of what undergirds European and American military jurisprudence is this idea that we are not making this up out of whole cloth. We are codifying practices that have been, or beliefs that have been in existence for far longer than we've written them down. We are making common law into constitutional law. And so... Exactly. And so, right, when a German says, I didn't know that I couldn't go in and round up all the women and children and shoot them all in the back of the head and dump them in a ditch, the response is, yes, you did. You were raised in the same civilization as the rest of us. You grew up with the same stories as the rest of us. You knew full well, the same as all of the rest of us, that that's not okay, that that's not how soldiers behave or what soldiers do, right? Your country signed the Geneva and Hague Conventions, right? You fought in an army that has been in continuous existence since Frederick the Great. You understood the rules of the game. And the fact that you're here in front of our court is simply a testament to the fact that your government doesn't exist right now or can't be trusted to do it itself. And so we're going to have to do 
we are essentially going to take you out back and take our belt off and do what daddy should have done to you ourselves, right? And something else important comes out of Nuremberg, too, and that, that's, it's the one that's often discussed kind of after the fact. Uh, Nuremberg is also about the idea that lots of German and, and, and the Tokyo trials, Japanese soldiers mm. tried to claim, which was just, I was following orders, yes. right? Which is an interesting divergence from this idea of the continuing codification and unity of written law. Mm -hmm. Because if you're following, you know, if you're being a legalist, you're just following orders. So this is a really interesting question and a specific sub-rabbit hole that we could probably do a whole episode on if you wanted. But uh, So I'll try to contain myself here. <laughs> this specific question of orders is one of the thorniest in this whole process and is... So there's the popular conception that everybody listening to this has probably heard, which is that it is not a defense to say that you were just following orders, right? That the law will not protect you, you should have known better, et cetera, et cetera. That's not actually true, at least in this period, right? The United States military will, when it enters the war, have two different interpretations in two different sets of legal guidance. Under the Articles of War, right, the congressional laws that are passed and which govern how U.S. soldiers can be tried and punished and all of that. It says very clearly that there is a reasonable person standard related to superior orders, right? That a soldier is responsible, personally responsible for crimes committed under the orders of a superior if a reasonable person would have known those orders to have been illegal when they heard them, right? Which is a, a, perhaps a good example is if you're ordered to shoot into a building you can argue, well, we don't know what was in there, mm -hmm. versus being ordered to shoot a civilian in the head. Exactly. Right. So, so what you're, it's interesting is because uh, you know with the Nuremberg trials, we often they often get the headlines, right? But yeah. there were relatively few trials actually conducted yeah. under that international system. Yeah. Most of the German uh, forces were actually dealt with under a German legal system, or not dealt with, what, or or not dealt with, as perhaps the case may be. But I want to kind of flip to the uh, mm. to the American side for a second, yeah. or the Allied side. Yeah. So you said at the end of World War One, the Germans were expected to try their criminals, yeah. air quote criminals, mm -hmm. and you said the Western Allies really, uh, the the French and the Brits didn't really try very yeah. hard on their end. Yeah. Do we see the same dichotomy happen at the end of the Second World War, where the Germans are expected to try their Soldiers. I'm, I'm not talking yeah. the, the, the the Goebbels, yeah. the Hitlers, yeah. the Himmlers. I'm talking about the soldiers who committed war crimes in the war. So, the the way that this plays out is the Germans generally are not the ones that are trying Germans. There there will be some of that, but at least in the initial period, there. So there are. There are essentially two, three major groups of war crimes trials that take place in Europe after the end of the Second World War. There's the uh, initial International Military Tribunal, what we think of as the Nuremberg Trials, right, which is mostly not for battlefield conduct violations, right? It is mostly high-ranking Nazi officials. It's for the orchestration and conduct of the Holocaust. It's for crimes against the crimes against humanity, aggressive war, right? These kind of macro level, state level issues. There is a second subsequent proceeding that occurs and more trials that are slated that don't occur that expand that out into other aspects of German society. There's a, a large kerfuffle about the possibility of trying major German conglomerates 
uh, IG Farben, uh, Krupp, uh, mm-hmm. Bayer, people who make your aspirin, um, for their use of slave labor in the concentration camps, for their knowing equipping of uh, the German military to do lots of terrible things, the people who make Zyklon B in industrial quantities to feed the gas chambers. There's talk of trying them for, for having provided that substance on that scale. Which fits the American conception of corporate personhood. Yep. Um, but there's also the minor war crimes trials, which are the small individual level. And initially those are conducted not by the Germans, but by various allied powers or local governments, uh, small, uh, small states, where those crimes had been committed. So at the end of the war, each of the armies and each state is encouraged essentially to forward to the United Nations War Crimes Commission a, a slate of cases that they have been investigating for crimes against their soldiers or their civilian populations or just that they've come across in the course of conducting operations. There are thousands thousands of those um but but those take it takes forever right it's a long and complicated process so in the initial immediate like 45 46 47 period it's the most aggressive period of prosecution now there is and i can't speak to the other allied forces but in the united states in the american military there is an initial push to go back and look at American conduct during the war. In July of 1945, Eisenhower orders an army-wide report that says, I want any instance of prisoner killing on the part of allied uh, American troops. I want any officers that gave orders to do it. I want anybody that condoned or sanctioned it. I want their names on my desk. We are going to have trials. We are going to put these people in a cage, right, because we can't jeopardize Nuremberg. And this goes out. And the call comes back, essentially, because the way that Eisenhower conducts this investigation is to essentially politely ask every division in the American army if they shot anybody. And they all say, well, gosh, no. <laughs> gosh, boss, of course we didn't do that. That would be crazy. Who would do that? Right. Um, Have you any war criminals? Exactly. Uh, and so the, in the end, the report essentially says, and this will get prettied up in the, the final executive summary, but the, the answer is essentially we have no idea. We didn't have a system in place that could police it at the time because we didn't build a military justice system that could do those sorts of comprehensive trials because because until 1943, the army was still half-built to do the reprisal system instead of the court system. Um, They didn't know. They had no idea. And at that point, if you can't go back and fix it, it's easier to say that it didn't happen than to say... Well, we can try the Germans because we've all been putting together copious reams of stuff about all of your crimes, but we just don't know if Americans committed crimes. Yeah. This is a fascinating discussion. We could probably go on for hours. Um, if, if people are interested, we have episodes that discuss these issues with Dr. Riato on Civil War Prisoners of War, uh, with Dr. Schneider and other faculty members on war crimes, uh, with Dr. Hall on these exact trials we've been talking about in Germany. So there's plenty more if people are interested in the topic. Um, Dr. Schneider, thank you for joining us. Thank you so much for having me. If you like this episode, please make sure to check out our other podcast, Broad Gauge Gossips, where we talk to members of the Department of Military History faculty so you can get to know them.